This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hello, thanks for joining us on Tech Transform, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford, here with my co-host, Mark Sinell. Hi, Mark. Hey, Carolyn. Good morning. Good morning. Today, our guest is Eric Trexler, Vice President of Global Governments and Critical Infrastructure at Forcepoint. Eric is an expert in the technology industry with more than 25 years of experience with both the public and private sectors. And Eric and I used to um, host uh, To The Point Cybersecurity podcast together. So today is actually a real treat for me to see your face again, Eric. So good morning. Morning, and and it's bizarre being back on the air with you, Carolyn. Kind of weird, you, huh? You mentioned your co-host, and I was waiting for my name. And Mark, <laughs> she mentions your name. It was it was kind of a trip to the uh, past. I I miss you, but you know I'm training Mark up. We're we actually have a lot of fun, don't we, Mark? We do. Yeah. I think she said the and same thing. Thanks for joining us, Eric. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about the perplexing and growing cost of cybercrime and how we can shift the paradigm. So, but before we jump into that, Eric, you have a, actually a pretty fascinating background. So can you just tell us a little bit about your journey? My journey? My journey in IT or where would you like um, me to start? You know, let's not go all the way back to birth. Maybe just, well, I'd like to hear, let's start at your Airborne Ranger days. How about that? Okay, we can do that. So, And then, and then how you got to where you are today. So yes, tech technology. So I was an aimless kid at about 17 with no, no potential to pay for college, no easy path at the time. And I said, I'm joining the army against my mother's wishes to become an airborne ranger and, and at the, 17. Yeah. Yeah. I had her, she had to sign the paperwork so I could join the delayed ar- entry program. And the, the, the military throws at you all when you have a high ASVAB score, that's the entrance. And I had a high ASVAB score. So I, I saw the Navy and they wanted me to be a nuclear engineer and, you know, the, and, and I just wanted to be a Navy SEAL back in the day before na- people knew what the Navy SEALs were, but you had to pick a rating. I believe they call it in the Navy. So I'm sitting in front of the recruiter and, and he's like, okay, but what do you want to do? And I'm, and I'm a dumb kid. I'm 17 years old. I want to be a Navy SEAL. Well, you can't do that. You have to have a rating. You need to be a, you, you know, you have to have the skill, a trait and, and nothing, absolutely nothing was interesting to me. So I left, went to the army recruiter and enlisted um, because they'd let me be an airborne. I was unassigned airborne technically. How I became an airborne ranger I didn't want to be normal. And I was in jump school and talked to a gentleman and, and I didn't want to wear chemical gear. This was right at the end of the first Gulf War and everybody was running around in mop suits, if you remember the mop suits. Mm-hmm. Hot, heavy, you can't see. Same reason can't I didn't breathe. want to be in a tank <laughs> or a ship or a plane. I wanted to be on my feet and I wanted to be able to move. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to wear mop gear. Guy said, here's what you do. And, and that's what I did uh, so that I, I literally made the choice because I did not want to wear a helmet and I didn't want to wear mop gear. You sound like my six-year-old niece. How she chooses what she wants to do is whatever doesn't require shoes. 
I was probably about as evolved at that point in time. I mean, Mark, you know what it's like to be a 17 year old boy. I mean, I mean, you're really pretty low on the uh, intelligent decision making maturity scale, right? I mean, you're just not there. It was a great choice. And it's how I got into IT because in about 92 or so, I started building computers. And we got a computer in probably 94, first computer in my unit to run you know, just the manifest for drops, exercises, Mm -hmm. you know, it was literally an electronic typewriter is the way these guys thought about it. I'm with a bunch of infantrymen. I was the only guy in the unit who knew computers. The only guy I built them for gaming. So I volunteered for college. I said, if if you allow me to set up college courses for the detachment, 60 person volunteer detachment I was in, I will, I will work in the ops operations department with the computer. And that's what I did. And I, it, my career just took off from there. How long were you in the army? Four years, 17 weeks. And some, and I think like four days or something with my contract. And then where did you go? University of Maryland. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was a, it was a great ride. It was even before the, the amazing benefits the government gives you in the GI bill today. Oh. I had the GI Bill and, co- and, and college uh, army college plan. I think that's mm-hmm. a college fund. It was like $28,000 for four years of service. That was, that was like the optimal break point. You could do five or six, but you really didn't get a lot. You got to like 32,000. Mm-hmm. And my goal was to go to college. So did you go to college full time or did you, uh, did you kind of dual shift at school and work at the same time? So I, I got about a, I probably got about a year in, in the military when I moved into operations and ran, you know, I didn't run, but I I did a lot of the operations work with a couple of E6s at the time I was an E5. But then I, when I went to college, I went full-time and I worked somewhere about 40 hours a week. I had a kid, right? My my first son was born at 20. So I'm out of the military at about 22 and I had to keep the lights on and I had to get my college education and, and get moving. So I was working full-time and I was working uh, and I was uh, going to school. I was doing probably 21 credit hours a semester on average. Yeah, that'll make you grow up. It, you know? It's, uh, it, you know, it's interesting. I have three boys and I think the maturity level as you watch them and their friends, 25 is the magic age in my opinion, plus or minus <laughs> three years for maturity in boys. It's just Eric's principle here. Unless you have a kid at 20 and you're in the military and you don't have a lot of help. And then you grow up really quickly. I stopped going to Nashville every weekend for parties and concerts and you name it. I, I stopped drinking. It was, it was time to get serious about life and, yeah. and uh, take on the responsibilities that I, that I, uh, I had. It was good. So what, was your, story. Yeah. what was your first job out of college? So I, I bartended a little bit. Um, until I got a job at Microsystems working on, I, I was a, I was a QA test engineer for all of two weeks, Carolyn. I don't think I ever told you this. No, I'm learning new things. It was absolutely miserable. I was the worst <laughs> QA test engineer ever. So I'm IT savvy, right? Mm-hmm. I can build computers. I've been building computers for years. You know, I, I know the Windows operating system. I'm pretty good at what I'm doing for that age and that period of time in life. I couldn't sit still. I kept talking to the developers. You know, I'm supposed to sit there and run test routines all day. And look, I had a bank of three monitors and I literally could not sit still. Two weeks later, I was like, this isn't working. And my boss at the time, I can't remember her last name. It was Melissa. She was awesome. She goes, you're right. 
and we had customer service problems. So we, we took a, an employee kitchen, we moved a bunch of computers and, and tables into it, and we became a, like an R&D faction that helped customer support issues. So we got all the hardest issues because we sat in R&D and it worked great for the company, it worked great for the customers, and most importantly, for me. Because I was always talking to people and fixing problems and doing things as opposed to watching automated test scripts build all day. It was the most boring job ever for me. Actually, I sorted apples once for a day. My grandfather was a produce farmer and he took me to this amazing job. I think it paid like four bucks an hour to sort apples. And that was probably worse than worse the test than engineering. Yeah, I mean, okay. at least with I the QA, I had about, computers. I thought you were talking about the, the Apple, Apple computers. And it made me no, think I'm Lars. talking like Lars Macintoshes is, and, and yeah. Rome and, you know, the, the, yeah. the traditional apples in Pennsylvania. And just, you know, moving on a conveyor belt and sorting and checking apples all day was like the most mindless activity. And it just did not work for me. Well, you're getting a lot out of me that I, I would say many close family members and friends have nev- never even heard. I'll we'll send sure. this to them. Yeah, exactly. I'll make sure to put well, Thank you. Thank you. That's good. That's good. <laughs> All right. So which brings us to today. Well, before you came to Force Point, was, were you at McAfee right before Force Point? Yeah. So I worked at Micros and I got my MCSE. I, I was really good at databases. I went to Sybase at that point. Great database company. I had a, I had a friend bring me over. And then I went to EMC after that and learned, you know, storage area networking at the best mm-hmm. of the best. So I've got a database IT storage background, servers, I built them. And then I went to salesforce.com for a two-year PhD in the cloud, which was, which was a great experience. And it was challenging at the same time based on, on customers and, and the, the sheer growth there. That's all they cared about. Um, so then I went to McAfee and really took up the infosec or cybersecurity side of the business, which I've been doing for the last 12 years. And it drives me crazy because we get work, we get further and further and further behind the adversary. Mm. You know, that's interesting that you, you bring up the, the whole Salesforce thing because they were probably one of the first software as a service companies that were out there. Certainly um, at scale yeah. and the scale they're at yeah. now, Mark, is I was, I was looking the other day, I have, a, oh. I have a couple of friends there, but I had lunch with a friend. I mean, what they're doing today, I, you, I, could, I could have never imagined in the 2008, 2010 timeframe. It is today, crazy. Yeah. So Eric, you and I have been talking about cybercrime, cybersecurity, you know, for a while now, and you've written some recent articles and you've been talking about it. I, I want to talk about the problem of cybercrime. And you you just mentioned that we're getting further and further behind. And when you and I talked earlier, it just reminded me of the Alice in Wonderland quote when she's in the Red Queen's race and the Red Queen tells her, we, we have to run faster and harder here just to stay in place. And Alice is like, well, that's stupid. So, <laughs> so let's talk about the massive amounts of money that we're spending on cybercrime and and cybersecurity and what needs to change. Yeah, well, I, I can talk to some of that. I certainly do not have the answers and what needs to change. I, I thought you put that quote in because of me, because it's actually something that my old CTO and, and CMO at McAfee wrote in a book called The Second Economy. They, they quote Alice in that specific quote in the context of cybersecurity. Yeah. So we were just talking about my career. Up until 2010, when I really joined cybersecurity 
hardcore for the first time. I'd always built things. IT is an enabler of the business. It builds things to make business run better, faster, Mm -hmm. cheaper, whatever it may be, but it's an enabler of the business. And you're always growing and building things. The problem with cybersecurity is you're getting further and further behind. You're not necessarily building things to make things better. You're, you're, you're kind of putting things together to try to prevent things from getting worse. It's almost the flip side of the coin, if you think of it that way. Is, Eric, is, do you think that you know, the fact that we're getting further and further behind is a function of the discipline of cybersecurity and that we're just behind there? Or is it, is it the fact that adversaries uh, like China, Russia, Iran, et cetera, are investing more and general IT, like quantum you know, encryption, quantum uh, computing, or artificial intelligence and stuff like that is, is that, is it more a function of that or the dip- discipline of cybersecurity? I really think it's both, Mark. Yeah. Right. So, so when, when you understand the, the rules of the cybersecurity world, the adversary gets first mover advantage. They get to decide every single time how they want to attack you how often they want to attack you. Mm-hmm. They, they essentially get an unlimited number of tries, right? Because it's risk and treasure. You know, when you, when you look at it, what's the risk versus the opportunity? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the probability of cyber there. And the risk is very low. You know, you don't see a lot of people going to jail. You don't see a lot of people losing money in cybersecurity. You see them gaining. At the nation state level, you don't see a lot of sanctions and things like that because of cybersecurity action. It's almost like there are no red lines and they're just taken for granted. And if if we're going to go into a country and and you know surveil their networks or our adversaries steal our IP all the time, it's almost accepted, unfortunately, these days. So so you've got that. The, the adversary first mover advantage, they get as many tries as they want. There are no silver bullets here. And and then you look at the defender side. We don't have enough people, right? Depending on who you look at data-wise, cyberseek.org is good. They'll show you we're probably a million plus people uh, behind on the cybersecurity side of of just being able to hire. We we don't seem to innovate. And that's an interesting comment if if you're me in an industry that has four or 5,000 players. But that leads to my next point. We don't consolidate. Right? The industry really hasn't consolidated. If you look at most of IT, you know, look at storage, or I mentioned databases or operating systems or even networking, there are usually two or three key players. We don't have that. And then when you look at the incentive side of the equation for the defender, if you pick a tool, a cool tool, I'm going to take you back to 2012, sandboxing. Sandboxing was the end-all, be-all, as FireEye at the time kind of took what was in, in academic labs and productized it and marketed the hell out of it. Palo Alto did the same thing with the next-gen firewall to iterate on the firewall side. You take a tool that's really hot and really cool as, a site, as an IT operator, a security operator, and you buy it and bring it into the business, well, you're doing pretty well. What's the efficacy rate? Yeah, we're probably not able to measure that as businesses. Most people don't care. And you just deployed a cool tool in 2012 called sandboxing. 
Well, the adversary quickly innovated around that, right? They had the ability to look for sandboxing. Am I running in a virtual machine? Is my malware running in a virtual Mm -hmm. machine? They put in things like time delays, which are really easy. The sandbox isn't going to sit there for 30 hours and wait for your malware to activate. It's going to look for it to activate right away. So I'll just put a seven-day delay in, and you can quickly innovate around that, and that's okay. But the defenders aren't any much better for it. Let's, Let's put it that way, right? Now, if you're the person on the team who brought in that tool, you can probably go to a bank or another company and say, well, look at my resume. This is exactly what I did, regardless of effectiveness. I can do the same thing for you and get a huge increase because we all know, or I think most people know, the only people really making money in cyber in general are the employees. If you're on the defender side, if you're on the attacker side, if you're on the vendor side, I mean, maybe you could argue government employees aren't making as much as they could be. That would be accurate. But the employees are making the money. A lot of cybersecurity companies still today run at a loss. Right? So so we've got all these dynamics in the market that make it a really hostile environment when as a when as a business owner or you know, a network def- a, a cybersecurity defender or whatever it may be. You're just trying to protect information. You're just trying to protect business, right? It's a tough space. And it's equally as easy for the adversary. If they want to steal something, if they want to make money, it's a pretty low risk, low, you know, not so hostile environment. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah, it's perplexing. It's really why I stay here because you look at it and, okay, I'm not in IT anymore. I'm not building things, really. We're falling further and further behind. I think there's an answer, but we don't have it yet. And, and to me, that's like the ultimate puzzle that maybe by the end of my life, I'll have some some clues to how to solve it. So let's or go back we, to what we will. You, I'm certainly not solving it. Go ahead, Carolyn. Well, yeah. you said, so you said a couple of things that I want you to unpack a little bit for me. So you said in cybersecurity, we don't consolidate what what would that look like if we did? And then you said something that that really got me. You said we don't innovate. Are you suggesting we haven't innovated since the sandbox in 2012? I'm not, but I'm thinking about it in a maybe a different way. Okay, so the first one. What was what was the first one? The consolidation. Hung, what would that? Yeah, look consolidation. Like? So there, there are four or five thousand companies, right? We haven't mm-hmm. consolidated like most of IT, like most businesses do. You know, Michael Porter talks about industry clustering, and we've seen clustering, but we haven't seen consolidation. Even any like industry, we have they're, a half a dozen leaders. Yeah, we have a half a dozen kind of players in our in our market compared to the to the cybersecurity yeah. space. Four or five thousand is crazy. Pick any space, and there are probably ten to twenty larger organizations, and there are dozens to hundreds of startups. And I think the, 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 the market drives in that direction with venture capital, the private equity, all the investment, all the hype, the fact that you can launch a product. I mean, Splunk was not profitable for, I don't remember when they even became profitable, right? They were operating at a major loss, not to pick on Splunk. There are a majority of companies who do this. And look at the stock price and look at how they took off because they were going for market share. Here I am at the time, 2010, I I left McAfee in 2000, what was it, 2018, the beginning of it. We were profitable, I believe, the whole time. 
not an interesting company, didn't have the funding we wanted to in innovate the way we wanted to, wasn't interesting in the market, wasn't interesting to customers in the same way the hype, that hype wasn't there, right? So, so we're not seeing that consolidation, which would allow us to do better, in my opinion. As recently as this year, Gartner, May of, May of 21, Gartner put a, uh, a, a security forecast out there around security and risk management and said, we're spending about, a, we, we spent $150 billion on security and risk management um, as, a, as a global people. In a year? $150 billion a year. And that is up significantly year after year after year. And, and I will give you one guarantee. We will spend more in 22 than we did in 21. And if or we in consolidated or 19. And when you say consolidate, you mean like some of these little companies come together to form a bigger company? And would that well, help I, I think that's this? Part, I, I think that's part of it. I, I think the other piece of consolidation is the average, and I, I don't have a stat for this one, but the average organization, enterprise organization, has over 70 cybersecurity tools in their business. Mm. How do you manage it? Mm -hmm. Additionally, and I was just talking to a buddy who was over on Sunday, he had to deploy a tool at the endpoint level because the network team, the network security team, wouldn't let him deploy a firewall in the business because they own the firewalls. And he has, he's an enterprise architect. He runs a team of architects. It's a large financial institution, one of the largest. And they can't break down those cultural walls. He just needed a firewall and some situational awareness on the endpoint. And the network team said, firewalls are our business. You can't install that. So he had to t pick a software product that emulates a firewall, which turned out to be a good answer because he couldn't work with his own team because they couldn't consolidate. Why couldn't they consolidate? People don't understand risk in the business. They don't think that way. And they don't come together to understand that they are there to support the business, the security of the data and the people and the operations and the, you know, the things that the business is in business to do. Mm. They're worried about their silos or their feastum. So across the landscape, we haven't had that maturity that you would see in a traditional business. Imagine if Henry Ford didn't produce, didn't come up with the idea of mass marketing automobiles. And we continued to just do one-off automobiles. Every time somebody needed a car, you went to your local garage and they built something from parts and things. And there was no standardization. There were no cost efficiencies. Yeah, Think about the, the complexity of that. Think about the danger. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, this, well this, and that's this what we're talking goes, about. Yeah, this goes to part two. How does that impact the innovation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so innovation, if you have an idea, you can probably get some level of investment in cybersecurity, and it creates a lot of it, it creates a lot of uh, distraction, in my opinion. And innovation is, I'm a, I'm huge on innovation. Innovation is really good, but we don't have any constraints, any controls, and I would argue that we have a lot of waste that goes into companies. Four to five thousand companies, last I saw, data wise, in cybersecurity. Okay, so if 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 we the three of us came together over some drinks or a dinner and tried to name the number of cybersecurity companies we can think of. Maybe we come up with 100 or two. What are the other 3,800 doing that they don't hit a list of people who are in the business? Now, if I asked you to do the same thing around servers, you'd probably say Lenovo, Dell, HP, maybe some custom brands. 
but we're talking maybe a couple dozen players. Mm-hmm. It's a very different world. If I ask you to do that around cloud service providers, let's let's do it right now. How many are there? The majors. Three. Three. <laughs> Amazon, Google, Microsoft, yep. Oracle, Oracle, IBM. There right? you go. I'll give you five right there. Yeah. Okay. So let's go a level lower. And now you're talking about people who may leverage that AWS infrastructure to do what they're doing. Uh, you may talk about some one-offs and, and, and we may fragment it out a little, but there's mass consolidation and focus. And then look at what we're seeing in the CSP world. Look at what we're seeing in the server world. You don't have a lot of choice, but what you do have is, you know, decent price competitiveness. You have capabilities that we're driving, right? Because of that consolidation, they're able to invest. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a big problem, which does limit innovation. There's tons of innovation. And I think there are a ton of ideas that never get to market because companies don't know how to get off the ground. They don't know how to get published. And- even if you have the greatest little niche company with the greatest idea in the world, how do you scale that out at the enterprise level? How do you make it interact with other products, right? So that that CISO doesn't have 70 or 80 or 90 different products and they're spending a ton of time looking at how do I bring them together? Okay, disclaimer here. I'm not a startup guy. I think it's great. I think you can make a lot of money. I think you can lose a lot of money. I think you can have a lot of fun. You can get great lunches. There, there's some really great things that we see in startups and we've seen some startups. I mean, you, you can name a bunch of startups. Amazon is a great one. Microsoft was a great one, right? Hell, you go back to the forties, IBM was a great startup. There is a place for startups, but we need more focus, more consolidation, more, more focused effort in the business, in my opinion. Eric, you, you're in a very, I would say, um, niche, high bar to entry uh, uh, area of cybersecurity in this cross-domain market. And how has the uh, consolidation and innovation kind of manifested itself in your industry over the past, you know, five, six years? Yours is even a good example. I mean, really, what Forcepoint is now with the cross-domain, you were the pioneers. Like, this happened... 25 years ago, really with this company that has now become Forcepoint, right? There's not Mm -hmm. a lot of other players. Well, it's it's one of our product lines, and I don't want to get into a sales pitch here, um, but it's a very niche, very regulatory compliance controlled market, Mm -hmm. right? So so our primary competitors are government-funded, government-sponsored research shops or organizations FSIs, federal systems integrators like a Lockheed, Paraton, who are funded by the government to do exactly what we do. We happen to be 100% commercial. And the beauty of it is we're, we're, we're relatively nimble. Um, we're able to innovate and do things as, you know, as we can, if not constrained by regulatory controls that say, oh, you can't do this. Um, but it, it has enabled us some flexibility. At the same time, we, we have to earn every dollar we make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, and I would say, like like you said, cross-domain is just one of the technologies, but it could be argued that it's not actually cybersecurity. Although I see you could. It, right? Because it's... You could. And in fact, I would. It's, 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 I, I would argue that it's a, a, a component of cybersecurity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because what we're really talking about, we'll take Forcepoint out of it for a second. 
we're, we're really talking about network segregation, air gapping, mm-hmm. the ability to take critical information out of an adversary's ability to access it. It's probably the best way to put it, right? And, and we, cross-domain allows for that bridge between from one network to another. I personally believe, and one of the reasons I'm here, it works really well, very effectively for the government. There is a commercial component to it. If you think about industrial control systems, if you think about almost any business will have systems, capabilities, operations, data that has no reason to be accessed via the internet, mm-hmm. right? So how do you isolate that? How do you separate that out? How do you air gap it effectively so that, you know, if, if you're a bank, your trading system does not have access to the internet, direct access or, or pick your system, an industrial control system that controls you know, I don't know, nuclear control rods on a reactor. There is absolutely no reason that should be on the internet. Mm -hmm. So put it on a separate network, not accessible. Now, you may have logs. Mark, we were talking about this a little in prep. You may have files like update patches or files you want to send into that system. You may have people who need to access it from somewhere else. There are ways to control that accessibility. There are ways to control... um, what you're doing while isolating that network off of the internet. And and that's exactly what the governments of the world do with their classified networks. Um, and and it, it's expensive, right? It's, it's, and, and when I say expensive, you have to buy equipment and capabilities, but people, it slows you, it slows mission down, right? Because there's this, this trade-off between high, you know, low risk tolerance, security, high levels of security, and mission effectiveness, mission mission capability, just let the data fly. We can access it from anywhere, whatever you want to mean. And, and, and there's this tension there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, that's interesting. I don't think that the industry has, when I say the industry, the world has seen this as a good mechanism to keep the adversary out yet, with the exception of governments. Mm. Because cross-domain was a game changer for governments, right? I mean, yeah. We, we talked about like the sneaker net days to get information for people to do their jobs, especially if you're talking about the warfighter in theater and needs information to get it to them. Sometimes it's far too late by the time they get the information because of the different classifications. I'm surprised that there aren't other uh, organizations in highly regulated industries that haven't jumped on this. Yeah, finance, so there are, healthcare. And you, see lower, you, you see lower level like diodes one-way mm-hmm. devices, hardware or software that prevent data from going in one direction. Mm-hmm. You, you see some of that. We, we are seeing more pickup in the industrial control system space and, and critical infrastructure. We think we're going to see a lot more. I'll, I'll give you a great example with COVID though. When COVID hit, you know, the, the US government, governments across the world are really great at what we, they call you know, DR or COOP, right? Continuous operations yeah. um, or disaster recovery. Mm-hmm. There really weren't any that were good at figuring out what happens if my workforce can't access my systems, mm. right? What if I can't go into an office, not the office? They were good. Hey, if you can't go into the office in in Virginia, go into the office in Maryland or D.C. or Florida or wherever it may be, right? We can have the workforce go into work there. Okay, so COVID hits. What happens when you can't go into an office, 
and you have to access classified systems. Right. So one of the things we saw in abundance was an, an interest from the government to get the get the ability to access data from outside of the office, from wherever they are. And we happen to make a technology there um, that does that well. But that's almost showing IT because, you know, if you have a laptop, you can access information anywhere, right? I mean, we do it all to all day. I'm working from home right now. I think the two of you are. Mm-hmm. You can access your corporate systems, hopefully safely and securely. Classified systems didn't work that way. Once COVID hit, they had no choice. So they had to change that risk tolerance equation. Um, and, and they were able to access SipperNet, DOD secret from hotels or home or what they considered safe environments. How? No, it's, so it's, it's VPN is a component of it. So the way they do it, you know, and this is the security piece where we're not building something, but we're trying to secure something that was built for mission effectiveness. So, so you need see commercial solutions for classified. And I won't Mm. go into a whole lot of that, but just a, a NSA specified requirements to do this securely. And that is VPN. Mm-hmm. Um, it leverages VPN to create a dual secure tunnel between the laptop, which is able to access whatever. But when you close that laptop, all the data is gone because mm-hmm. it's running in a VM. So you also have virtualization. So that's technology used for really good. So and did those we are see the a lot of agencies stories. stand that up really quickly with COVID? A is massive, that what they did? Massive amount of uptick. In fact, what I, I had one tell me, this is like crack. We can't turn our users off <laughs> once they get a hold of it. And I'm like, yeah. Perfect. That's what we that's what we want. But those are the type of IT and, and cybersecurity systems that you feel good about mm-hmm. because you're enabling the mission, whatever that is, regardless of who it's for. I mean, virtualization was a great example in the early 2000s when VMware came out with, you know, really productized virtualization. I mean, imagine the productivity gains we saw, you know, because of things like that. Same thing with the cloud. So this tech is really good and can be used for good. We just have to secure it. So let's circle back to the cybercrime issue. And I just glanced at the time. I can't believe that it's this bad today. (laughs) So one of the the biggest attack vectors and has been for a long time is phishing attacks, right? I knew you were going to say it. I know, I know. Because, well, (laughs) because you mentioned it with the sandboxing and with, you know, how agencies deal with attachments, so back in the day, they would sandbox the attachment, make sure it was clean, and then let it go through, right? Um, where are we now with phishing? Because it's still, is it the biggest attack vector or one of? Um, I, I believe it is. The, the best, probably one of the most reputable sources would be um, Ver, the Verizon the data Verizon. breach mm-hmm. report that they put out every year. I like it. It's relatively independent. Mm-hmm. Verizon doesn't seem to have a... a, a uh, you know, a, a horse in that race for the most part, they, they they seem to do good work. I wish they were consistent from year to year. They seem to stray and do like, you know, we want to talk about this more this year and this next year. Uh, so it's hard to do year over year compares, but you know, they're saying, that, you know, on the, on the breaches, I believe 36% of breaches were um, a result of initial compromise via phishing. And, mm-hmm. and phishing is essentially a link or a piece of code or software malware in an email, typically that comes in, somebody clicks on it. We all get spam all the time. There are emails that always come in and you're not sure if they're good or not. And and people are human, they make mistakes, they're fallible. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. And then you get to stolen credentials. Mm -hmm. 
And Verizon is very clear here. And, and this number isn't growing significantly because it's so high. 85% of the breaches are related to a human element. And I think it was 78%. The latest one is 60, 61% were related to credential theft, right? I am stealing your credentials, Mark, and I am impersonating you as a VP in the organization with all of your rights and privileges to do bad things on my behalf, not yours. Yeah. Major problem. Ransomware, number one attack vector is phishing. Somebody clicks on it, boom. The county government is hacked. You know, now we've got ransomware in the environment because Joe clicked on a bad link and Joe happened to be an admin and had access to a whole bunch of stuff. So have we gotten any better at dealing with phishing attacks since the sandboxing really was sandboxing the first um, way to thwart that really? No, I would say sandboxing really didn't have a lot of effectiveness around phishing unless mm -hmm. an executable came in as an email attachment or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a file, a malicious file came in and you, you sent it to the sandbox before you were allowing someone to open it. Mm -hmm. Now that is that's relatively attainable in sandboxing because email is not a real-time application. It's near real-time. So if you pause an email for 30 seconds, not a big deal. If you pause somebody's trading transaction, that could cost the bank or the institution money. So email's easier in that way, but we, we certainly have seen phishing grow. So that that wasn't the answer. And I think we need to look at different ways of solving these problems. One of the things we ran into, um, you know, as we were looking at the Gardner hype cycle here at Forcepoint a couple of years ago, uh, were some technologies around remote browser isolation and and um, content disarm and reconstruction technologies. And I, I, like I said, I don't want to go into a sales pitch, but a different way of thinking about the problem, right? So remote browser isolation, there are a whole bunch of companies out there that do that, really allow you to simply surf the web safely because you're doing it in a browser that is a virtual machine that is not on your desktop, that does not have an easy way to get back to your desktop. So instead of firing up Chrome mm -hmm. and going to www.microsoft.com, you would fire up Chrome and then there's a there's a VM essentially inserted in there, very minimal to, to very limited impact to the user experience, which is always been critical here. That's what I was just gonna right? ask. What does it yeah, do? You can't impact the users or Amazon. they will find, yeah, they'll find ways around it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so RBI is like an up and coming tech and, and it's not going to solve all problems, but it thinks about the problem a little differently. It extrapolates the user from the accessibility, if you will, to the, to the adversary, to the malware. Mm -hmm. Now there's a problem with that though. What happens if you need to upload or download files from that website? I just applied for a mortgage. How do mm -hmm. I do that? How do I send my, my W-2 safely and securely up there to, and ensuring that there's no malware for the bank to receive? They need to ensure that. That's where the content disarm and reconstruction component comes in. Another different way of think, thinking about it, it can take that file, and this is something we've used in cross-domain for decades. We, we just called them filters, Carolyn. Right. It can take that PDF, take the content out of it, move it and reconstruct it in accordance with the specifications of the PDF specification. Like make sure what, what anything, it's, the way it's supposed to look. Anything bad is out. Embedded JavaScript, embedded malware of any sort, you just strip it out, it never comes across. Steganography, 
-hmm. ability for an employee to put a technical manual into an image and send it to their home account, it strips it right out because there shouldn't be content in there that isn't in accordance with the JPEG or the GIF or the the TIFF file format, right? So it just strips it out. We do the same things on email, same as web browsing. As an industry, these are some up and coming ideas that that really remove the user from the threat, mm-hmm. almost going back to earlier in the conversation around cross-domain. A different way of doing it though. Yeah. And I like the fact that the industry is thinking differently about some of these problems. All right. We I promised you I would end you at the top of the hour. Do you have time for our quick yeah, no, I'm fine. questions? Okay. I'm fine. All are right. we oh, okay? Here we go. Here we go. These are the the quick hit answers, but they're usually well, they're some of the funnest. So what do you think the next big leap in tech will be? Or what do you want it to be? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd love it to be a, 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 an actual advance on the cybersecurity side that allows us to compute with ease without a lot of overhead and baggage and, and, and feel safe and secure. I don't know what that is. I do think the cloud service providers and the consolidation we're seeing there will ratchet up the amount of protection we have, almost consolidating there because they have security capabilities of the infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? So they they protect the cloud, not what's in the cloud. Right. So it almost eliminates a, a, a significant piece of the problem for organizations who aren't financial institutions or who don't have their act together on a cybersecurity side because the CSPs are, are really good at what they do. Now, there's some challenges there, which we don't have time to get into. So I, I think that's a big piece of it. Um, and I think consolidation into the CSPs, the move to the cloud will definitely help things. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, you get to ask the next one. Okay. Um, so, Eric, what are, what, what are you reading? What are you listening to? Um, movies, books, TV, podcasts, or anything like that that's inspiring you these days? Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think since the invasion of Ukraine, my my uh, Twitter use has gone way up and my actual watching news has gone up. Um, inspire me, though. You threw me for a loop with that that piece. Yeah, I need something to read to, like, distract me, okay? <laughs> well, you know, it can be tech. It doesn't have to be tech, but... Uh... So, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to read to think differently about the problem. There's a book I read last year that I keep going back to called Think Again by Adam Grant. Hmm. I don't, I actually, it it sits on my desktop and he basically argues in there. He's a, I think he's a Wharton professor. Um, I, I don't know his exact discipline. He's like behavioral psychology or something. He basically argues that, you know, we should, we should strive to understand the other person's perspective, not to tell them they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's a, there's some good exercises. There's, there's some really good examples in the book that help you think about whatever situation you're in, cybersecurity problems here that, that have helped me open my mind as I look to what technology should we buy? Who should we partner with? What recommendations do I make to our customers? How do we think about this problem? Because this is a big part, I and mean, it's my career. Um, how do I think about it differently? And then the other one I'm reading right now, I'm just about to start, is a book called The Generals, nothing to do with cybersecurity, um, which is really about the... World War II and on American military and how gen- how we've changed over time. We used to fire a lot of generals quickly if they didn't hit their goals. 
And if, if you think about it, if, if the risk of being fired is pretty high, you will take more risks. By definition, you will be a risk taker because the probability of getting fired is probably high. So what do I have to lose? Uh, let's let's see what I can gain, and, and, and so I, I really am interested in that. I just started it. I want to I want to think about that because what Thomas Ricks, the author, said was, or, or I think tries to share is, we've we've come into this lack of risk taking type of environment because the consequences aren't aren't, aren't high to not taking a risk, mm-hmm. and I like risk, so that's a, that's another one I'm looking at right now. Other than that, you know, it's. Uh, it's Twitter and and CNN and and just you know going back to the the poor people of the of, of Ukraine and and you know that that mess yeah. we're dealing with. Yeah, it's hard to focus on a book right now. It is really yeah. hard, and that's why I'm reading Smut. Um, just anything to easily distract myself. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that one, Mark. I haven't heard of that, that book one? before. I don't know. Okay, but I do. So some the book that you're reading, Think Again. I'm. Do you ever listen to Pivot? It's a podcast about technology and it's the hosts are super edgy. They drop the F-bomb a lot, which I aspire to do. Okay. Um, but they talk, I, I just listened to one on social media and how we've really essentially sil- siloed ourselves as a society. And we only look at, we put these blinders on and we only look at information that tells us what we want to hear information that is like us. And so we've, I mean, the division between, you know, Republican Democrat, like we're no longer Americans. We're, we're identifying with these other things first. So it makes it really hard to try to see somebody else's point of view, because that's not what we want to hear or see. So would you agree with that, Mark? That's like a di- identity politics, right? Yeah. Which is kind of, which is okay. kind of pop culture. It's kind of like, um, you know, everything we see on social media is, revolves around identity politics. It seems like these days. Right. So kind of. And, and so, Mark, you and you and I are probably close in age. Have you seen a change over the last couple of decades? Oh yeah, hugely. I have seen. Uh, I have seen a change of more intolerance, less, less, um, more intolerance, meaning less tolerance. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Less tolerance, more intolerance. Um, you know, people talk about, you know, um, they talk about tolerance and they talking about, they talk about, uh, freedom of speech and and wanting to hear being open-minded, but I see a lot more closed-mindedness. But they only want to talk about tolerance and being open-minded with people that have the same points of view of them. And I've even found myself doing that. Um, I've surrounded myself. I live in an area with a lot of like-minded people, which is supposed to be a good thing. And then I'll meet somebody and I'm like, oh yeah, I used, I used to think like that. Like, I even went to my uncle's house a few weeks ago. I used to think like that. <laughs> well, yeah. I think that's improvement. Well, no, what I mean is <laughs> I, I went to my uncle's house a few weeks ago. So my dad's brother, and there's like all these dead animals on the wall. And it kind of made me sick to my stomach. And then I was like, wait a minute. I have hunted. 
I mean, that was how we fed our family. We went hunting every year and I loved it. I mean, I have pictures of me with my trophy kill. So I, it took me a minute to remember, oh, this is part of who I was and am, but I was repulsed for a hot second because I've surrounded myself by a bunch of liberal vegans. So the I good know. thing I I think taking out of that, Carolyn, is you you were open at least to looking at another person's perspective. Yeah, which I think is important. And that it was my perspective, Eric. It's who I was, and so this therefore that, still am. This book that you're reading, I, I want to read that. Same. So I know I know we'll get it and we'll get it and we'll put it in the yeah. show notes, but. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll like definitely okay. So I totally rattled us, but well, that's okay. It's 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 well, it's your show. I shouldn't say that's okay. But, <laughs> um, it's it's not one of those typical management or self help books or anything like that where you read the first chapter and you're like, okay, get the gist of what the author was saying, move on. I've got, I, I'm ashamed to say, hundreds of those on the shelf. Oh, me too. It is full of good examples and stories to help you open your mind. Mm. And I think we need that. I mean, you look mm -hmm. at like COVID, it drove this arbitrary barrier or maybe it's not arbitrary. Maybe, you know, Mark, if you weren't vaccinated, I, I really wasn't going to let you into my house. Yeah. Right. I happen to believe in vaccination. If you don't, hey, no problem. We'll have a different discussion. We don't need to have a discussion, but I wasn't going to let you in my house. So we weren't even talking. Yeah. And I feel like there are things like that that drove these these wedges or barriers between people who could normally get along, previously got along. You saw it with families, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you're seeing it in Ukraine and Russia right now where we're getting media reports where there are family members on the Russian side of the border who don't think there's a problem in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And there are people in Ukraine who are like, the back wall of my house just evaporated. I have a problem here and, and, and they can't get through that common barrier. Yeah. And I think what yeah. Adam Grant would say is to help break down that barrier, he does say, you need to open your mind and, and be able to and will, willing to ask questions and understand the other person's perspective. Well, And, COVID and if it's crazy, it I believe in aliens. I mean, Look, I okay, hear well, help why. me understand why. Talk, right. talk me through that. <laughs> help me understand why. And I think depending on how ridiculous it is, if it is a ridiculous argument, that individual runs out of steam pretty quickly because they can't produce aliens. Yeah, well, my sister's been abducted, so she can show you the spots and everything. So Okay, well, I there think. you go. But But <laughs> even if you do believe in aliens, I would argue, you're not hurting me. Right. That's okay. Yeah. Let's talk about it. I'd like to understand a little more about that. Yeah. So it's a really good book. It's uh, Think Again by Adam Grant. I think it came out about two years ago. Um, I, I've read it twice now, but it's really about understanding and knowing what you don't know, not what you do, because he talks about, you know, none of us know anything. I mean, if you think about we, what we don't yeah. know, it's, it's orders of magnitude beyond what we really do know and what we think we really do know, we're usually wrong. Yeah. 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 All right. I got to let you go. Thank awesome. you, Eric. I could talk to you all day. Thanks for doing this today. It's really interesting. Fun, being on the, Mark, it's interesting being on the other side of the podcast. <laughs> I, I apologize if I if I spoke too much. No, it was great. You were I enjoyed the conversation. To. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
So thanks to our listeners for joining Tech Transform, sponsored by Dynatrace. Share this episode, smash that like button, as our good friend likes to say, Eric. And um, we will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.